I'm just curious, um, how many of you, so this is a raise your hand kind of a question, or if you prefer, if, if you fit this category, then you can shoot right out of your seat and scream and yell. <laughs> Permission to do that in church, that's pretty good. If you have never, never, if you have never disagreed with someone else, raise your hand. <laughs> Nobody jumped out of their chair. Come on. My former pastor, he, uh, he said this uh, frequently. He said, uh, where two or three are gathered, there are at least four opinions present. <laughs> I think he's accurate on that. Sometimes we get sideways with one another and there's disagreements. Um, so I have another question for you. Have you ever believed in something so strongly that you were willing to start an argument over it? These are the truth tellers in the congregation. <laughs> I'm teasing. So, and, and have you ever felt so passionate about something that you were, let's just say, that you were, you're so passionate about it that you were willing to let something get just a little bit awkward because of it? And you were okay living in that awkwardness? Yes. Um, you already know who you are. <laughs> Some of you are sitting right next to the person. Um, but we disagree about all sorts of things, don't we? Politics, religion, how you put the toilet paper on the dispenser, <laughs> whether you squeeze from the end of the toothpaste tube or the middle. You know, those, those sorts of things. <laughs> yes, exactly. The, the easy marital solution to that is you have your own. That was free marriage advice right there. Mark it down, say amen, we can go home now. Um, Acts 15. So we have, we have been working our way back from the beginning of the year, and we, we've moved all the way to Acts 15. And there's something really interesting about this particular story and where it lands in the geography of the text. Not, not that it's, you know, somewhere in Antioch and Jerusalem, not that kind of geography, but in the placement in the book of Acts, there's geography. So the, the story that we come to today is exactly the middle of the book of Acts, there are as many words before this story and as many words after, if you want to get down to being that precise. And so somehow Luke has put this story as the, the fulcrum of the message of Acts. And I just find when that seems to happen, why does he do that? And when we turn our attention, I'm going to read Acts 15, the first 21 verses here in a minute, but when we, when we look at how the author puts it together, it, it ought to tell us something about the message. Maybe this is central, central to what we need to learn. And you know what he puts right in the middle? Like the first really big church fight. They had a disagreement. It was based on, you know, some theological things and some other things that people were trying to lay on as a burden to people who would be entering into the faith. So you could say that it's a, um, a heated discussion, a disagreement in your Bible. It might be labeled uh, the first council. Well, that's a really nice way of saying they had a knockdown, drag out war over this. So, we're here in Acts 15, it gives us the summary of this, and it's, Luke puts it in the middle because if they could not resolve this in a healthy way, the church would collapse. 
the church would split. Unity would go out the window. And what would we have left? So let's read the story, and then let's talk about it. So would you stand with me? This is Acts 15, starting in verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Now, I always find it interesting. Uh, So Jerusalem and Antioch, roughly 300 miles apart. You know, when we say up and down, we typically think of the geography of how it lays out on a map. And so uh, Jerusalem, Judea, being 300 miles south of Antioch, it would seem like um, it would be the other way around. But everything at this point kind of uh, started in Jerusalem. And so if you went out from Jerusalem, you were always going down to wherever you were going. And if you were going to Jerusalem, you were always going up the mountain. So these people came down and they started up and they said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So some people came down, they started up, they already started the argument there in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas got upset. Antioch, the church there, says, you know, let's send a delegation back up the hill. So they go to Jerusalem The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they are welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, and he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, says James, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood." For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, I guess it's a couple weeks ago now, I had the opportunity to sit through a series of lectures from... Uh, one of my uh, favorite 
theologians, Tom Wright, or N.T. Wright, as I sometimes, um, he goes by that sometimes. And I was sitting there, and I, th- I think that he said this. It may be a combi- this, these may be a combination of uh, Tom Wright's words, the Holy Spirit, and my interpretation of the two. So he said something like this that I think, uh, I'm going to have a whole sermon on this one at some point, uh, but it fits really well with the overall concept uh, that I want to talk about today. And he said, he said something like this. He said, holiness is easy if you don't care about unity. And unity is easy if you don't care about holiness. And I think the first debate that we just read addresses this statement almost to a T. You see, some of the Jewish Christians could not come to accept the Gentiles. Um, and they, they could not come to accept that the Gentiles could be holy and part of the covenant family, which they felt like they were included in. The Gentiles couldn't be part of that unless the Gentiles adopted their own holiness code. And these, some of these early Jewish Christians, let's be clear, not all of them, some of them, a faction, a group, who felt like the Gentiles also needed to follow the law, they were okay with fracturing the unity of the early church over it. And so for them to practice this holiness code was an easy thing when you didn't care about how it might affect the unity of your church, of the church back then. And if you think about the other side of that equation, it's, it's really easy to be unified if you don't care if there's any kind of a code at all. If everything goes and everybody has a license to do whatever they want, we can just all get along and be one big happy family and party on. So I think that that statement, I just want you to maybe jot that one down. I'm not going to talk about that particular statement anymore this morning, but let that one float around as we work our way through this passage. So we have this debate, this council, this situation that, we're, that we just read about, and we have uh, Paul on one side, and we have James, who will we'll get to it in a little bit, but James, the one who spoke up with the compromise at the end, James was really kind of uh, in the camp of the other side, and so you had Paul and James, sort of the representatives facing off with one another, and then we had Peter speak up, and he spoke um, in favor of Paul's side, but Peter in this debate sort of, he's, he's, he's trying to play double agent. And we're going to unpack that in a minute. But Peter's kind of waffling in the middle, but he ultimately comes and remembers the vision that he had from God about the Gentiles now being clean. So Peter ends up in this camp, but he's sort of a floater for a while in this. But there's a deeper story that's going on here, that's playing out. And the deeper story is some things that are going on in the life of Paul himself. There's a background to, the, to Paul's own experience and, um, you know, his own personal experience and then his experience in sharing the gospel. And so there are what I have come up with of, you know, there's at least four crisis points. And a fifth thing that I would say is a tipping point for him. To be willing to go to bat for this one central idea. That if this one idea that he has in mind which is like the central point of the gospel. If, if this is lost, then you lose the whole thing. And it's shaped in him through, through these things. So I, want, I just want to run through these sort of quickly with you. And this is sort of teaching, not necessarily preaching, but I think that's okay, right? It, it won't hurt you. Um, so first, 
Paul's own conversion experience. We read about it back in Acts chapter 9. If you want to jot it down and, and read about that later on, it's at the very beginning of Acts chapter 9. And Paul experiences grace from the very beginning of his conversion experience. And so we need to remember a little bit about this man, Paul. He was a man who excelled in all of the ways of Judaism. You can read about all of his pedigree and his accomplishments in Philippians uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 4 to 6, if you want to jot that one down. Uh, he understood himself to be righteous according to the law. In the Philippians passage, when he says when it comes to matters of um, righteousness based on the law, he says, I am faultless. His pedigree, he studied with uh, one of the famous uh, rabbis, Gamaliel. Uh, he worked for the Sanhedrin. I mean, this was, this was like a Jew among Jews. Faultless according to the law, he claims. And if you were to ask, does this man have religious merit that would put him in some sort of good standing with God, Paul would have emphatically said, absolutely yes. This is the kind of guy he is. This is his background. Yet when he's holding all of these things that he's worked for, everything that he has earned in his life to this point, he's, he carries those around and he uses them as a bludgeon in the early church to persecute the followers of Jesus. He's on his way to Damascus and Jesus confronts him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And in that moment, everything that he had worked his entire life for up until that point disappeared. And so he is left standing there on the road in front of Jesus with empty hands. He has nothing. None of that counts. He comes to a moment where he figures out all of that stuff, I've missed the mark. And in that moment, based on all of that and his knowledge of uh, the law and Scripture and his ideas and understanding of God, I, I imagine that in that moment, Paul is standing there and he figures out, I am now e essentially naked before my Creator and I have nothing and I've actually been working against Him. And so in that moment, I imagine he was a bit terrified I imagine that he thought that he had reached his moment of judgment and it wasn't going to end well for him. And instead of guilt and shame and condemnation and punishment being added to all of that, Jesus shows him amazing generous grace. He experiences the love and the care and the compassion of Christ in a moment where he would have been expecting the lightning bolt. And he doesn't get it. So this is experience number one, Paul's conversion experience where he himself experienced amazing grace. The second, um, <clears throat> we read about this in... Um, an episode in Acts chapter 11, the, the crisis moment or this important thing in Paul's life doesn't appear in the pages of Acts, but we read about uh, an event that, that it happened during. And so in Acts chapter 11, we learn that there was a famine that was going to happen in Jerusalem. And currently, Paul is uh, leading a church up in Antioch. Word comes to them there's going to be a severe famine in Jerusalem. And the church in Antioch says, you know what? We're in a moment of uh, 
relative prosperity. We're doing okay. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are going to be suffering through this famine. We should take up a love offering, and we're going to send it down to help them in Jerusalem. So they do that. The church collects some money, and they say uh, they have Paul and Barnabas, and we find out in, in other parts of the New Testament, that in uh, Galatians, that Titus, a man named Titus, who was a Greek Christian, also goes along with Paul and Barnabas. And when they, when they this is a, now this is a mercy mission, mind you, right? This is the church in Antioch sending support to a hurting body of believers over here. And so they're, they're carrying this love offering and they arrive and we're told in Galatians 2, Paul writes about it, that some of the people who are pot stirrers there figure out, somehow, they figure out that Titus is not circumcised. How they figure that out, I don't know. <laughs> that didn't make the cut of the last pages of the Bible. And so I think that we're just going to have to imagine. <clears throat> I think that they probably assumed that because he was a Greek, he had not been circumcised yet. But they made a big ruckus over this. On a mercy mission, mind you, we cannot accept Titus as a Christian. He is not worthy. He is insufficient. He cannot be called a Christian. He is not one of us. And Paul about loses it. He will not stand for that. And so in Galatians 2, we're told Titus was not circumcised. They were emphatic about that. But this is something that shaped Paul's understanding of the gospel and of grace and these interactions between humans. That would be the second one. The third thing is that Paul is willing to let things get awkward with Peter. So we hear in this narrative, and we read in our story in Acts 15, that there's a group of people who are saying, you know, yes, we can preach the gospel, we believe in Jesus, we believe Jesus is God's uh, agent of reconciliation in the world, he came so that we might be forgiven and find salvation, but we need to add something to that. And anytime you say it's Jesus plus anything, what you're saying is that what God provided for you is insufficient. And so the grace of God at this point, in Paul's mind, there's a group of people who's saying, well, the grace of God is not sufficient for you to be saved. And Paul's message is, no, it's Jesus plus nothing. And Peter is kind of caught up in the middle of this. So he's the one who had that vision about Cornelius and the sheet came down and, and the whole point of that, uh, that vision was that God was saying that what, what has been viewed as unclean for a long time is now viewed as clean. There's an open door. Take the message to the Gentiles. It's okay to be in fellowship with them. And Peter, he embraced that right away, right? Remember that? But then if you flip over in your Bibles, it's worth looking at this confrontation between uh, Paul and Peter. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, and I believe it's in about verse 11. It gives us this episode, and this is where the, the third crisis point for Paul is this time when he lets things get uh, awkward with Peter. In Galatians uh, 2, 11, says, When Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, so this is James, the guy we, who made the nice speech and the compromise at the end, so this is the connection between James um, who is sort of representative of this group of Jewish Christians from Jerusalem. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. He used to be in open fellowship. He used to be unified with the Gentile Christian brothers and sisters. But when they arrived, when, so when this faction from Jerusalem arrived,
when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. So this is the real you. You are a Jew, but you have been living like a Gentile. This is who you are. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So Paul gets a little bit upset with Peter when Peter tries to play both sides of this equation. Yeah, well, the people from headquarters showed up, and so I better follow all of the code from whence we came. But he's already been living with the Gentiles and in fellowship with them, and when he crosses back on this line over here, it sends the wrong message to the Gentiles. And it would cause question, are, are, we, are we really included? Or are you just pretending that sometimes? And Paul, Paul's not a bashful guy. He opposes him to his face. Fourth thing. During Paul's missionary journeys, when he was taking the gospel into Gentile territory, he experienced rejection in the Jewish synagogues, but he saw the grace of God miraculously at work among the Gentiles. And this was a regular pattern. He would go into a town, he would, have, he would gain some traction within the synagogue, but um, by the end of it, most of the, the Jewish uh, folk of that community had turned on him and rejected the message, while there were oftentimes huge groups of Gentiles who were coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and so it, last week I said wherever Paul went, there were two things that like always happened. One, the gospel got preached, and two, a riot started. And the riot was usually started by the Jewish people in those synagogues in that town. Not all of them, some of them. So, last week we read a story where Paul was in Iconium. It was a little tense for a while, but he stayed there for a long time, teaching and preaching. A great many people came to faith, both Jews and Gentiles, but there was a group that was just angry at him. And they came up with a plot to stone him, and so he, came, he got wind of that, and so he got out of town. I got to escape. He went out into the hill country to Lystra, and he started preaching there, and they received him like a god. And he said, no, 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 I'm just a human. I'm trying to point you to the one true God. And the people that were upset with him in Iconium were so angry with him that they followed him to Lystra. And when they got to Lystra, they stirred up the crowds so much that Paul got stoned, like with rocks that day. And they left him for dead. So these are experiences that Paul has had. That he experienced rejection a lot within the Jewish synagogues while at the same time watching the marvelous grace of God and the Holy Spirit let loose within the Gentile ranks. So these give us the background and the tipping point, like the one that just pushes him over the edge, is what we read at the very beginning of chapter 15, this sharp dispute when some people from headquarters in Jerusalem came down to the church in Antioch and said, unless you are circumcised, unless you follow the law, unless you become Jews first, there is no salvation for you. And Paul loses it. And they come into a sharp dispute and debate right there in Antioch. <clears throat> and then the church in Antioch decides that we're going to send Paul and Barnabas 
and, another, and another, some other folks, some other delegation, and we're going to send them up to Jerusalem to, because we need to settle this now. The one group believed that you had to add things to Jesus to be saved. Now, keep in mind, these are, these are people who grew up following the law. This is their culture. This is what they knew. These are not bad people. They're trying to come to grips. They're trying to come to terms. They're trying to understand what unmerited grace looks like. And they're on one side, and then on the other side is Paul and his camp that says, no, the grace of God is absolutely free. You don't work for it. And so Paul's at the tipping point. He's over the edge now, and this is worth fighting for. So what is it that he's worth fighting for? Let's see if this goes. If you want to uh, boil down Paul's theology into one sentence, um, if you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 2, or maybe you could write it down because I'm going to put it up here on the screen. This was what was at the core. This sentence. That if you lose this, the rest of the gospel crumbles, according to Paul. So let's, let's just read this together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. <clears throat> Do you hear how the argument is encapsulated in that statement? And Paul gives us his opinion, his belief. This is, he is willing to go and let it get awkward. He is willing to go to Jerusalem and say, this is about the free grace of God, that there's nothing that you can do to earn it. There's no amount of work, no amount of effort that you can invest to earn God's favor, to earn God's grace. And he's willing to fight for that. So I, I kind of drew it out because it looks, it looks a little bit like this. So merit, something that you earn, um, something that you work for. And then in the bigger bubble, I put the word acceptance. And I think deep down, every human, every human has a longing for some sort of acceptance and love and relationship. And it's set up right now that there is a group of people in this early church that are saying, you have to do a whole lot in the first bubble so that you can have what's in the second bubble. And Paul says, no. No. But if you think about it, this, this is really hard, even, even for us who've maybe grown up with these biblical concepts for a long time. We grow up in a culture that hardwires into us that we have to work for everything that we get. That we have to do stuff, like we have to get on this never-ending treadmill, and if we, if we do everything just right, then it'll line up our outcomes how we want them to. If I work hard, if I achieve in school, if I do this or that, then I will be successful. Then I will find a job. Then I will be rewarded in, in some way. So we quickly learn that we have to perform so that we experience some kind of benefit. And there's nothing inherently wrong with this. If you work hard, you'll oftentimes are rewarded. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I want to show you is that that concept is so hardwired into us that the concept of free grace is, really, is a really difficult one to come to grips with. 
And so when you think about that um, in terms of relationship, in terms of love, in terms of uh, acceptance, just listen to how we talk to our kids sometimes. When they do something good, you know, we tend to compliment them. Oh, that was so good. Daddy loves you so much. Did you hear what just happened there? I attached worth and love and acceptance based on what they did, not on who they are. And it comes out so fast that it becomes hardwired into us. Maybe I could talk about it this way. So this, this summer we did a thing in our household and um, this is Daisy. Daisy is a five-month-old puppy now and so as you can imagine, we are in the throes of puppy obedience training. Puppies will do anything for a cheap hot dog. They really will. <laughs> Any kind of behavior you want, you just wave that little bit of cheap hot dog in front of them and all over it. So I was thinking about this the other day when we were outside working on a few things and I noticed it in my vocabulary. When she did something well, she got a little bit of hot dog and all my love and praises. In her little puppy mind, I have to earn, I have to earn dad's love. I have to behave in just the right way and I will achieve these things. But when, you know, I chew on his socks or bite his hand or, you know, just, you know, these sorts of things, it doesn't end up so well for me. Well, what's being ingrained into her little puppy mind? Sometimes it's easier to talk about pets and, and those sorts of things instead of the way we treat people. But oftentimes this concept, it's so lodged in our minds that we, we do these sorts of things, we treat people these, in these sorts of ways because it's so hardwired in us that that's what naturally comes out. And what we're doing is we're just solidifying this difficulty of accepting things when we don't have to work for them. In our world, we reinforce this notion that if I work and do the right things, uh, I really will get what I want. What Paul is arguing is that you can't place the law. You can't place this set of requirements above Jesus and set it up in any kind of equation that says you have to do these things, you have to be circumcised, you have to follow our holiness code in order for God to find favor with you and to love you. Paul is saying is, no. It's grace. You don't have to earn that. Back out of that kind of thinking because it's just there for you. He's arguing for this. You can't have a prerequisite. There is nothing, nothing that precedes the grace of God because um, placing requirements on grace invalidates grace as grace. You place any kind of prerequisite or requirement on grace, it invalidates grace as grace. I was thinking about this. I got a piece of mail within the last couple of weeks and it said, congratulations, you have won a free dinner at the ribeye. Woohoo! <laughs> but then there was some fine print that said as part of this free dinner, you have to sit through a seminar on, I don't know, toilet brushes or something. I, I, I have no idea what it was. But I was looking at it, and I'm like, so it says I've won a free gift. I really want to pick up the phone and call him and ask him to define gift for me. That would be a fun conversation to have. Can you tell me what a gift is? Because gifts 
by their nature aren't earned. They're free. You just give them because you want to. You don't have to do anything to receive them. But in this case, yes, there's the free gift of this dinner. Oh, but wait. You have to do this first to get it. Paul is totally tearing all of this down. And so if we, if we flip back to Acts 15 and the couple minutes that we have uh, left this morning. Well, you can look at that for a while. That's okay. For Paul, all of this has to be resolved. There's clearly two camps. And so he goes with the delegation to Jerusalem they tell of what God has been doing to the Gentiles. Um, Paul has a clear understanding that th- if this concept does not get solved, then the church is going to rip apart. There's going to be two groups. There's going to be a group that goes with Paul, and there's going to be a, a group that you know just goes off with uh, this faction of the Jewish Christians, and the, the unit, unity will be lost, and there will be theological discord between the two camps. So they go to talk about this. What's really at stake here is, is unity. And I wonder, it's easy to read about a couple thousand-year-old story, but I wonder if it happens these days. I wonder if it happens in our world now. Um, Just think about how often our personal preferences or argumentative natures, they fracture the unity of a church. They, They wound the souls of the people who we are swinging against. How many, how many times have you seen Christians, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, who have had their enthusiasm just smothered or snuffed out because of poor, immature behavior on the part of fellow believers. Paul knows this is what's at stake in this debate. So they talk about all of it, and James gets up, and he is, he is persuaded at this point that we cannot lose this concept of free grace. He is all in now, but he also knows that, that there, is, there are a large number of Jewish Christians, and both sides ought to be uh, mutually sacrificial for the benefit of the other side. And so he comes up with this compromise, and he says, let's not make it difficult for the Gentiles. Instead, He gives them four things, and they're all based upon unity, about preserving the fellowship. Hey, you know what? We eat kosher. So when we fellowship together, let's let's put that out there so that, that, uh, you know, we're not going to make it difficult. We're not going to put, like, this really high bar on salvation for you because it is free grace, but, but don't make it really hard for us to fellowship in your communities and in your homes. I thank God for the wisdom of these two men and representatives who were in that room. But Paul and James, while they had a heated discussion, they were able to, they were able to come to a middle ground. And too often these days, we, we really live in a world that I describe. We, we, live, um, we, we want to have dialogue, but it's really a monologue world. And so when you have an opinion, to, to win, you just shout your opinion louder. It's a monologue. You don't really care what the other person has to say. When they're talking, you're going la, 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 la. Or you're trying to figure out, well, how can I you know, make my argument stronger so that when they stop talking, I can shout at them again. We do it in person, we do it on social media, we do it in every venue that you can imagine. We insist on our own monologue getting out there and we tend to keep dialogue at bay because 
dialogue oftentimes leads to, oh, well, that's valid. How do I reconcile that? Because we're taught that if any part of this, if any, over here, if they disagree with anything that I think or believe, then I have to write them all off. And so we typically just walk around in groups of like-minded people and you get a bunch of groupthink coming out of that. Thank God that this council didn't degenerate into insisting on my monologue has to be right. They came to the point where they agreed on the essentials. God's grace is free. You don't have to do anything to earn it. There's no prerequisite for that. But these other things that we're being insistent on, they really fall in the non-essentials category. And Paul writes about it later. He, talk, he talks to his churches about, you know what, you have the right to do all sorts of things, but just because you have the right to do it doesn't mean that it's good or healthy for you. And just because you have the right to do something, if you practice that, you may be creating a stumbling block for some other believers. And so if we take on the character of Christ, who is a sacrificial person by nature, it makes sense to me that they would come to a, a both-and solution and not insist on an either-or. So they, they realize that unity is at stake, and they realize hey, we are supposed to be transformed by the love of Christ, and we are supposed to be sacrificial towards one another. So on the essentials, yeah, I'm going to rise up and I'm going to argue. I'm going to let it get awkward when it comes to things that are matters that, that as big as the concept of God's free grace, but when it comes down to our eating habits and you know some of the other things that they pointed out, um, we can make some compromise on that so that we can have the unity with one another. That's one of the core underlying things here. So real quick to end, two things that I want you to consider of how this kind of meets the rubber, meets the road for us, if you will. If you get caught up in believing that we must perform in order to be loved by God, it'll change your understanding of who God is. See, we'll see him as a God of expectations. And we will constantly be trying to measure our worth based on our actions, and we are going to carry around a bunch of guilt um, and shame because of our sin. We'll become self-critical, We'll begin to look at our lives and we'll begin to say things like, it doesn't feel to me that I'm good enough. Because there's always like an accounting spreadsheet that when we do something good, we get a mark. And when we feel like we missed the mark and went the other way and we sinned, then we take one away. And so it's this ongoing, never-ending math equation and you look at the balance at the bottom and you're like, I'm not good enough. because we're always trying to earn it. Parents, it's really good. You know, it's, it's okay to be proud of our kids' accomplishments. But in the merit-based acceptance equation, sometimes, we would look at our kids as products. And if they turn out good, wow, we must have done something right. But what happens if you have given your kids a solid foundation and they go sideways? The risk is in the merit-based acceptance equation that you start to beat yourself up over it. Oh, we didn't do enough. We must be horrible parents. It's simply not true. But you start to believe that you're a failure in this kind of a system. Or when something happens and you lose your job. Wow, I must really be worthless. 
or when your relationships break down, or when you get older, or when disease starts to set in and you can't perform any longer to the standards that you think are needed to earn God's love, then you have the question, am I still worthy? This is why retirement is such a crisis point for so many people because when you retire your venue to work and achieve is gone and you wonder without a career do i have any value am i worthy am i acceptable can i be loved so it begins to fracture us and devastate us And so this is why the idea of God's free grace is so central. And you can't miss it. You can't. I want you to hold on with a passion to the unmerited generosity and grace of God. And don't let go of that. This is something that's worth arguing about. It's worth being awkward about that God loves you, period, without qualifications. Yeah, but you don't know. Erase that. And if we understand that our behavior doesn't control God's love, then neither does our sin and our misbehavior. So if, if, if my behavior is not a precondition to God's love for me, then when I mess up and when I sin, I must not... I must realize and believe that God doesn't withdraw his love from me. That it's just there. And he meets us in our brokenness and our pain and he's there for forgiveness. And to help us get better. To help us shed lives of sin. To get rid of bad habits and so forth. God will work with you. He will meet you in that place. But he never, ever withdraws his love from you. Your worth is anchored in the affection of God. It's not anchored in your performance. That's the gospel. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, is the free gift of God. Not of works that no one can boast. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. I just want to close and